Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Dogcast Radio. In this show, we hear about the most common orthopaedic problem that dogs have. It's basically because in dogs, the cruciate ligament is weaker than it should be. It's not fit for purpose, if you like. We have the Dogcast Radio News, and we consider the strategies that dogs adopt to cope with various situations. But before all that, Dogcast Radio listener Chantal Charbonneau contacted us with a problem concerning her two dogs. Chantal emailed, saying, I have two Weimaraners, neurotic as they can be. They are lovely, but for one horrible habit. They are recyclers. The big one, Mambo, almost three, has taught his younger housemate, Roxy, two years, to snack on their droppings. We have researched this for as long as we have been aware of the problem. We have tried grated carrots, yoghurt, pineapple, meat tenderizer, you name it, all with no success. We clean the poo up as soon as it appears. Now the dogs refuse to toilet until we are well and truly inside the house. Then they do their reprocessing in the blink of an eye. We think the problem started with Mambo being a one-puppy litter for a first-time bitch. He seems to have learnt the behaviour at the breeders. We got him at about ten weeks of age. He later developed a serious case of mange as a six-month puppy. He was dropping weight and food was passing through him almost as soon as he ate it. So our thinking was that the droppings must have smelt the same as the food we fed him. Problem is, the bad habit has become part of their routine. Well, veterinarian Nancy Kay, author of Speaking for Spot, agreed to tackle this problem, which is formally termed coprophagia. Well, coprophagia just really refers to the rather disgusting habit of eating one's own feces and um, or eating feces in general. And dogs tend to be very coprophagic when it comes to cat feces. And I think in part that's because cats eat a very rich, high-fat diet. Um, So dogs, it's not at all unheard of for dogs to eat the feces of cats. And we see them eating horse manure, cow manure. But what is unusual is when dogs eat other dogs' feces or their own feces. Mm. And um, that's it's. It's not so much of a health issue in terms of it doesn't typically cause issues for the dogs. It may signify an underlying health issue, but from an aesthetic point of view, it's extremely displeasing. It's, you know, it takes that dog that you want to cuddle with and have sleep in your bed and you kind of go, ew, I don't even know if I want to be near that dog when you see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's one of those habits that I think quite a few people struggle with, but are reluctant to talk about or you know mention to anyone and it is yeah. that sort of that kind of taboo thing so it's it's great to sort of get it out in the open and say look how do we tackle this so we've had a listener's yes. we've had a listener's problem um and you know she has wrestled with this she's tried you know giving them grated carrots yogurt pineapple meat tenderizer whatever um you know as, as a trying to stop them doing it and she's having no success so um yeah i mean i, I get what I guess before we get into how to stop it, what what are the causes of it? Is it is it known what the cause of it is? Well, Julie, in most cases, it's a behavioural thing. Hmm. The same way that some dogs always want to have sticks in their mouths, yeah. um, or some dogs are focused on the tennis ball. Uh, they're, they're just behaviours, and this too is a behaviour. The problem is this behaviour 
really interferes with the relationship with the human. Um, And much more so than a dog constantly dropping a tennis ball at your foot um, or running around with a tennis ball always in its mouth. This is really kind of an, this is a horribly displeasing behavior from a from an aesthetic point of view. The vast majority of dogs that are coprophagic, it's purely a behavioral issue. It's something that they learn to do from another dog. In this household, uh, the, your listener talks about both of her Weimariners having this habit. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of the dogs learned it from the other dog. A small percentage of the time, probably, Julie, no more than 10% of the time, the coprophagia is driven by an underlying disease process. There are a couple of diseases that dogs can get that make them insanely hungry, and they'll eat anything that isn't tied down, including their own feces. And there's uh, those are a couple of different diseases. One is if there is a malabsorption or maldigestion problem in the bowel. Mm. So the dog is eating but not getting the benefit of any of those calories. Let's say that the pancreas has quit producing digestive enzymes. What that means is the dog eats, but because the food isn't digested, it can't be absorbed. And that's a dog that's virtually starving in the midst of plenty. That's a dog that's very thin even though he's eating adequate amounts of adequate numbers of calories. And so that dog's so hungry that he begins eating his own feces. He would eat cardboard. He would eat whatever was in his path because he's so hunger-driven. He feels like he's starving. The second sort of scenario would be, and so that's a dog, I'm sorry, that looks very skinny and is eating ravenously mm-hmm. and losing weight. The other scenario is a hormonal imbalance we call Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome. The scientific name for it is hyperadrenocorticism, and that's when the body's own adrenal glands manufacture and spit out into the bloodstream too much cortisone. Mm -hmm. So if any of your listeners have ever given cortisone to their dog, prednisone, the side effects are increased thirst and increased appetite. And some dogs will take that to a whole new level. They'll just feel like they're starving all the time. And so uh, a dog with Cushing's disease typically has kind of a pot-bellied appearance because of abdominal muscle weakness. Their thirst level is increased and their appetites can be insatiable. So if you have a dog that never used to eat his own stool and now he's suddenly doing that or eating the bowel movements of other dogs in the household, you'd want to think, could there be some sort of a maldigestion or malabsorption problem going on in the intestinal tract? Or could there be excessive cortisone in the system called Cushing's disease? Dogs with either of those issues don't look like normal dogs. They have physical changes that would suggest that they have those underlying issues. But I guess the take-home point for your listeners would be if your dog is suddenly eating his or her own bowel movements, pay a visit to the veterinarian to make sure that neither of these illnesses or issues are what's driving the coprophagia. Yeah, yeah. And then if there is no underlying cause found, then one can try the various things that your listener wrote in about, although they have a dismal success rate. Yeah. Um, the, the, the The only real trick of the trade is to be attached to your dog every time he or she goes outside so that you can clean up the stool immediately uh, and not let the dog eat it. Um, The one other thing that I think of too, which works 
for some dogs would be to keep a humane muzzle on them when they go outside. Mm. So that they're really, and, and we do do that for dogs that are known pebble eaters, rock eaters, you know, the dogs that have had to have several surgeries to remove foreign bodies, then it might be reasonable if they'll tolerate a humane muzzle um, to have that on when they go outside. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have had a dog um, staying with us, a retired guide dog, who um, had this problem, and a muzzle worked for him. But I was talking to one of the, um, you know, you, you still get support from the guide dogs. And she was saying some dogs are so determined to still eat poo, they will just push the muzzle right into the pile of poo so they can still eat it. I mean, it, this, right. this one of the problems, it seems to me, is this behavior is its own reward, isn't it? Yes. You know, it would be like any other sort of obsessive, compulsive behavior. Um, and, you know, th- th- there's... a bunch of different things that you can try um, that don't, none of them in and of themselves have a great uh, track record in terms of success, but it's worthy of trying. So you're right. The muzzle may not work for a lot of dogs. Many dogs will just pull muzzles right off. The meat tenderizer may not work for every dog. Um, So you just try these various things. But ultimately, the only thing that really works is to be by your dog's side um, when he has a bowel movement, so that you can quickly move him from away from it and, and clean it up. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like... That's it, the only thing that re- is reliable. Yeah. So it sounds like it can come down to sort of a battle of wills, if you like. Your your will to stay with the dog till he, you know, performs, and the dog's yes. will to wait till you've gone before he produces right. any, any poo. That's right. And it may be that one could condition the dog, for example, after a bowel movement, walk him directly away from the stool and give him a treat so that he becomes conditioned to, I've just had a bowel movement, I should go get a treat to try to distract him away from the eating his feces. So the, the first person to consult with is a veterinarian. The second per- person to consult with might be a, a, a dog trainer who's well-versed in behavior to see if you can condition the dog out of this behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess it's something that's that's... I've heard puppies can pick this up because the, the bitch, in, when she's sort of got her babies, her puppies, um, they naturally clean up after their puppies by eating the poo. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, I mean... And there, there may be a nutritional basis for that um, or an evolutionary basis for that. Um, in order to protect the puppies, you keep them as clean and smelling as fresh as possible. But I, I don't know that there's any proof, Julie, that puppies do indeed learn that from their mothers. Hmm. I, yeah. I don't know that there's proof of that. What I, we do know is that puppies are silly and and put crazy <laughs> things in their mouth. Yes. Um, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking it's, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, when my Labrador was little, he would eat anything. If you couldn't get it away from him fast enough, you know, it wouldn't matter if it was a, yes. a sock or a nappy sack or, you know, whatever. It, it would be gone. Gulp, gone. And, yes, you know, that's exactly right. Um, but I'm thinking if, if, you, if it is a problem that you have with a younger dog, it may be easier to nip in the bud. It's when it becomes a real ingrained habit, isn't it? It, it can become a habit. And just like so many sort of compulsive behaviors become habit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess, as you say, the bottom line is a trip to the vet just to see if there's any underlying um, problems. Anything that's making the dog just crazy with hunger. So he's willing to eat absolutely anything that isn't tied down. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and then if it, then it's on to behavioural causes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the success rate for correcting this behavior is pretty. Di- it's pretty dismal, mm. and it becomes sort of a lifelong management issue. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess I would say that it's unlikely to be harmful to your dog's health. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly impacts the relationship. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, it does. Is there, again, is there, and, and this may be another a myth that I've picked up on, but if you give them um, sort of a, a real, you know, uh, it's, it's bath, isn't it, bones and real food diet, that they di- digest that better and sort of less comes through and the, the poo is less attractive to them, is that true? No. No. <laughs> no, and there's no real proof that that is a diet that's digested better than, you know, any mm. other diet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, it's just a case of pick it up before they do. Ultimately, in many cases, that is true. Yeah. Now, what I will say, Julie, is I'm not well-versed in any of the sort of complementary, there may be complementary therapies, herbal therapies, uh, that I don't have direct experience with. mm Um, so it may be that, um, you'd want to check with a couple of different types of veterinarians to see what products they offer to try to fix this problem or solve this problem. Um, so you may want to work with someone who does Western medicine and, and then try also someone who works with Eastern medicine and, and maybe between the two of them, one of, you know, they'll have a solution that that yeah. makes a difference. Yeah. I, I have to say what we found was because, we, you know, as you say, it's a horrible problem and you kind of think, ugh, and you have to find a solution as quickly as possible. Um, and we found some tablets that were called deter tablets. Um, what are they called? Deter, D-E-T-E-R, uh-huh. deter. And they were just on sale in um, pets at home, you know, a pet shop. Um, yeah. And they did seem to do the trick and we had to put all the dogs on them because the dog we were looking after was just picking up, you know, cleaning up all the poo. Well, um, the idea behind something like that is to impart a really nasty flavor to the stool to make it less palatable. Mm. That's the same The same is true with Adolph's meat tenderizer. Here in the United States, there's a product that's probably like your deter. It's called Forbid. Mm. And so... Um, the, the main thing is if you start a product like that is just run it past your veterinarian yeah. to make sure there's nothing in there that would be potentially harmful. But if it's not going to harm your dog, I say if it works, use it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we looked into deter. Certainly in the UK, this deter um, didn't have any uh, known uh, side effects. So we kind Good. of thought, okay, we'll go with that then. Um, but it, it is something that I think people don't like to mention so it's great that you know you can sort of get it out and say well look this is a problem we all face or or some of us face yeah you know um it may be unusual it's not it doesn't have to be taboo so let's see if we can beat it the one thing that i would say where it can be potentially really hazardous um do you have raccoons no we don't not 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 wild in the uk no oh okay because um in raccoon feces is a certain type of parasite that when ingested by a dog, it can cause some horrific, um, typically fatal neurological disease. Wow. And so um, that that's certainly a situation where it could be really problematic. Yeah, yeah. Nancy, as ever, you've given really sound and sensible advice. Um, where can people find out more about you? Oh, um, the way that they can find out more about me would be to visit my website, which is www.speakingforspot.com.
We have links on the Dogcast Radio site to the Speaking for Spot website as well as Nancy's Twitter and Facebook pages. And you can hear Nancy talking about her book, Speaking for Spot, which can help you be the advocate your dog deserves in episode 90 of Dogcast Radio. Now, as Nancy says, coprophagia is a difficult and embarrassing problem. So if you know of a product or approach that has worked wonders for you, do let us know. Dogs often hesitate before going out in the rain. Rather than being afraid of getting wet, it's because the rain amplifies sound and hurts their sensitive ears. We've created a number of dog-related websites over the years, and recently we've used GoDaddy, the world's largest domain name registrar. If you're looking to set up your own dog website or blog, we have a couple of special offers for you. You can get 20% off hosting plans with the coupon code DOG20H1. That's D-O-G-2-0-H-1. Or get 30% off a .com domain with the code DOGCAST6. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T and the number 6. If you do decide to set up your own site, we'd love to hear about it. You can find out more about these and other offers by going to dogcastradio.com forward slash GoDaddy. Dogcast Radio is a paid affiliate of GoDaddy UK. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. Hello and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Kate. And I'm Nick. We start this episode with a story with a sting in the tail. Ellie, a Labrador from California, USA, has won an award for the most unusual insurance claim. What did Ellie do to win this accolade? Well, believe it or not, she ate thousands of bees. When Ellie's owners, Robert and Sandra Coe, spotted a swarm in their garden, they called in exterminators who dealt with the bees using pesticides. It was only later when Ellie started vomiting hundreds and hundreds of dead bees that it emerged she had eaten virtually all the insects and the chemicals that killed them. Ellie was very poorly for a few weeks, but had perked up in time to receive her award from the veterinary pet insurance company, a bronze trophy in the shape of a ham. You could say Ellie's been misbehaving herself. Well, it's obvious that Ellie and her family have had some worrying times. But in general, spending time with a dog is the best way to alleviate stress. A survey by MindLab International revealed that walking the dog is considered more relaxing than quality time with the family over meals or on holiday, with 44% of owners saying they worried less about career or financial problems after being with their dog. 25% said their dog was their best friend, and one-sixth of women admitted they confided their deepest thoughts only in their dogs. Now, if you're someone who talks to your dog, don't worry, because according to another recent study, you're not mad, and you're certainly not alone. Pet care company Purina carried out research in New Zealand and found that over half of dog owners tell their worries to their dog. A fifth of owners surveyed shared their bed with their dog, and over 50% buy their dog a birthday present. The Purina study turned up other interesting facts, such as 31% of women feel their dog is a better listener than their partner. 24% of men use their dog to talk to a good-looking stranger in the park, and 14% of men said their dog showed them more affection than their loved ones. It's great that we get so much out of our dogs, but according to the American Automobile Association, we should be careful about how we share our car with our dog. In an online survey of a 1,000 dog owners by the association, 
an astonishing 21% admitted having their dog on their lap while they drove, while shockingly only 17% used any type of dog restraint while driving with their pet. Some drivers not only pet their dogs while driving, but they even give their dog food and water. Needless to say, anything that distracts the driver is very dangerous and should be avoided. Meanwhile, in Plymouth, UK, a pizza delivery driver has been striving to keep his dog safe while on the road. Sean Cole's cotton de Tullia, Gizmo, hated being left at home, but Sean's job involves riding a motorbike. Q1 ingenious invention. Sean made a Perspex box, complete with air holes and a fan for Gizmo's comfort, and now the pair can ride in style and safety. It seems even the rich and famous can encounter travel problems with their dogs. Popstar Mika is so eager for his golden retriever to accompany him on his upcoming tour that he is having her gradually accustomed to airline travel, so she won't be unduly disturbed by the experience. And it seems another pop star, Robbie Williams, is so attached to his dogs that he just had to include them in his wedding to fiancée Aida Field. All eight, yes eight, dogs took the role of bridesmaids and walked down the aisle wearing flower-decorated collars. And that's all from us on the Dogcast Radio News Desk. Until next time, goodbye. In Russia, a team of doctors and scientists conducted over 1,000 telepathic experiments with dogs, of which 696 were successful. Most of the experiments involved testing the dog's ability to read unspoken commands. The research team concluded that some ESP factor must be at work. Earlier this year, Star, our Bichon Frise, ruptured her cruciate ligament just by running energetically through the woods. She ended up having surgery, and the whole experience was a shock and a steep learning curve for us, so I was eager to get some information about this condition, which afflicts a surprising amount of dogs. I interviewed John Davis, the surgeon who operated on Star. Throughout my whole career, I've been in general practice... But uh, seven years ago, I decided to break away from that and concentrate on the orthopaedic work, which uh, I've always been very interested in. Mm. And um, previous to uh, specialising completely, um, I'd always had this interest in small animal dogs and cats, Mm. uh, fractures and... um, dislocations and all the usual orthopaedic conditions that you get in general practice. So I decided to um, take a course to um, get more information on these conditions and uh, better ways of treating them. Mm -hmm. And uh, once I'd obtained the qualification, I was able to um, just concentrate on these cases. Yeah, yeah which um, it was a big decision to make at the time, but um, in retrospect, I can see it was the the right one now. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm certainly glad you did. (laughs) You've helped us. Um, So we're going to talk about cruciate ligament today, and particularly the rupture of cruciate ligament. So in the first case, um, what's, what's usually the first sign to the owner that the dog has a problem? With cruciate ligament? Well, um, first of all, it's best to say that this is the most common condition in the hind leg of the, of the dog. Yeah. And um, it's 
basically because in dogs the cruciate ligament is weaker than it should be it, um, it's not fit for purpose if you like mm. so the usual history is that um, there's a gradual onset of lameness especially after exercise and the owner at first might think it's uh, something comparatively minor mm. and um, gradually the lameness might become more obvious and so that it doesn't settle so well and then the owner realizes that it maybe is quite serious yeah. and yeah. go along to the vet and um, discover that it's the actual cruciate ligament in the knee joint that's the problem yeah yeah, because with Star, we'd had times where she would, after a walk, she'd be pulling that leg. I can't remember which leg, be because I didn't realise. I wasn't sort of looking for which leg it was. And by the morning, it would have righted itself, and you think, oh, she's obviously just pulled a muscle or something, and it's, right. it's gone right. Yeah. But then with us, we just had this complete lameness. Yes. You know, but even then, it's quite... It can be quite difficult for the vet to detect without x-ray, can't it? It can be difficult uh, when the ligament hasn't ruptured completely mm. because it's a gradual process. The ligament um, gradually uh, ruptures and keeps the knee reasonably stable so that you can't detect an instability there. Mm. When you manipulate the joint, you can't get the usual what we call the draw sign mm. um, so it's all you've got is a slight swelling around the knee mm. and generally there's some muscle wastage now these signs in the early stages can be missed mm. uh, so if you take an x-ray there are other signs there that mm. you can actually spot yeah. um, obviously you can't image the ligament itself so you just uh, look for the uh, secondary signs in the joint which are the telltale signs that things are not right within the joint mm. so what are you actually looking for within that x-ray then? Basically, you're looking for signs of what we call degeneration, which mm. is osteoarthritis. You get what's called osteophytes around the joint, which are uh, extra bone deposits at various points around the joint. You look for soft tissue swelling, especially in the medial side of, of the joint. And um, in addition, you look for what's called a joint effusion, mm -hmm. which is uh, increased fluid, joint fluid. And you can detect certain signs in the joint uh, that that's happening. And in addition, inside the joint, the radiographic uh, density uh, changes. So you get a different pattern of densities within the area of the joint mm. so right. that's basically what <laughs> okay. we look for yeah okay so then you've got your diagnosis which i found fairly horrifying as a, a dog owner yeah. it's, it's a bit of a smack in the face so then you've got some choices to make obviously with the advice of of your surgeon yeah. about what treatment to choose that's you? right yes 
fundamentally you've got two options. You've got a conservative approach and you've got a surgical one. The conservative approach is probably more uh, appropriate for small dogs and dogs which are not terribly active. Um, you're suggesting with conservative treatment that the natural process of healing within the joint um, will work to your benefit and in order to do that you uh, restrict activity fairly drastically. Ideally um, the dog uh, spends a lot of time in a cage and only has very short lead walks and this is done for six weeks. Uh, in that time you uh, are hoping that the inflammatory process that takes place around the joint creates extra soft tissue support around the joint. Mm. The ligament itself doesn't heal. Yeah. There's no way that the ligament can actually repair itself. Uh, so you're relying on the capsule of the joint thickening up to support the joint when weight is put on it. Yeah and um, in small, not too active dogs that can work. Mm. But in lots of cases, even in small dogs sometimes, the, um, as I've said, the onset of the problem is quite chronic over uh, a few months sometimes. Mm. So by the time the vet's seeing the dog, um, they've already done a lot of the uh, rest and um, yeah. a conservative approach anyway and you've decided well that approach isn't going to, to help mm. and then the surgical uh, options are more appropriate they're more appropriate in the big breeds um, and young dogs mm. very active dogs that want to get back to um, proper exercise again yeah um, the surgical options are quite many and varied. Mm, yes. um, in the past, we've tried um, a similar technique to one used in humans where a graft of the dog's own tissues mm. is uh, uh, placed in a similar position to the cruciate ligament to try and substitute um, we've found that that's not a very successful technique in all cases. Mm. So we've tended to look at other materials to uh, do a similar surgery. Um, I've tried most of them and not been too happy with mm. them. Um, currently we use nylon mm. um, and that can be very successful. But um, there are those percentage of cases where you're not happy with the outcome. Yeah, yeah. So there's always um, a, a, a striving to try and find a technique mm. where you don't get these uh, bad outcomes or less than satisfactory outcomes, mm. shall we say. So there's always this... Um, uh, impetus to try and find something that works that bit better. Yeah. yeah. 
and unfortunately at the current time most of these techniques involve very complex surgery and um, are therefore quite expensive yes <laughs> um, but they do seem to point the way to better techniques yeah. for the future because I'm sure that uh, it's um, not the end of the story at the moment yeah. and uh, it's uh, an ongoing picture really yeah. Yeah. now the, the treatment the surgery we opted for with star yeah. was the TPLO yes. wasn't it yes. which which can sound quite horrific the first yes. time you hear about it so what's the TPLO well TPLO is um, a shortened uh, name for tibial plateau leveling osteotomy mm. um, it involves cutting the bone below the knee a surgical cut and rotating the top part of the tibia so that the joint surface is no longer on a slope but is uh, level. Mm. By level we mean more or less perpendicular to the weight-bearing axis mm. of the bone so that um, because the joint surface is no longer on a slope, mm. the, um, the force which, um, when weight-bearing yeah. takes place, doesn't force the tibia forwards. Yeah. Um, it's, I always try and put it in a way that people might understand is it's the difference between trying to stand up on uh, an icy slope mm. which is more or less impossible yeah. you keep slipping down yeah. the slope um, and standing up on a level mm. slippery slope yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got more chance <laughs> you've got more chance yeah. Yeah. Um, so that the dog basically feels more confident when it puts mm. weight on the joint because the slipping doesn't take place quite so readily it feels more confident putting weight on it yeah yeah so you've said this is the most common problem with the hind leg so there's going to be lots of people presumably that, that yes. encounter this during the dog's lifetime yes. and it is a shock because suddenly your your dog's life is altered it's not going to necessarily be what you thought it was yes. um so how, what's the likelihood, if your dog does have a, a ruptured cruciate ligament, what's the likelihood that they'll get back to having, you know, a normal, good standard of life? Uh, well, it's, it's very high, really, mm. you know, looking at it percentage-wise. Um, probably with techniques, uh, older techniques, the chances of not getting back to a full life are higher. Mm. Mm. Uh, with the more recent techniques of osteotomies, um, I think you'd be looking at high 90%, mm. yeah. whereas it might go down towards 70s or 80s with, with the other techniques. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know the exact figures, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, that's the order of it, I would think. Yeah. 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 Um, 
you're also considering the time scale that it takes to get to that point. Mm. So we're always looking for a technique like the osteotomies that gets the dog weight bearing within a few weeks. Yeah. yeah. Whereas with the other techniques, sometimes you're looking at a few months yeah. before they're at the same stage. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got that factor mm. as well. Uh, if you look at all these cases, uh, old techniques, conservative treatment, and the osteotomies, say 12 months or 24 months after mm. the injury, then probably the outcomes are not so widespread. You know, yeah. they, they might be uh, more satisfactory mm. overall. Yeah. But it's a long time in a dog's life yeah. to be talking about two years to be uh, not really fully functional. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's a huge chunk for a dog, isn't it? It's, it's a big percentage of their lifespan. Yeah. So, you know, the speed mm. of recovery is important. Yeah, yeah. Are there any breeds that are more prone to this problem? Than oh, others? yes, mm. yes. Because, as I've said, it's basically because the ligament is too weak for the purpose. Mm. Um, that is determined by the genetic makeup. Mm. And you definitely find that uh, certain breeds, like uh, the Rottweilers, mm. um, they are much more prone to this. Mm. And it's not really an injury, it's a disease mm. um, within the genetic makeup. Yeah. And um, it, in some individuals, it comes out when they're a year old. Mm. Um, I have seen one year old Rottweilers with bilateral mm. problems. Um, there are other breeds, um, mainly the big breeds. Mm. Uh, Labradors are, um, mm. feature quite highly, um, and uh, some of these other. Breeds like uh, the American Bulldogs. Mm. I think what what I would like to say to people is sort of don't panic if this happens. No, you can. It can be put right. You can't get the knee joint back, but it never returns to normal. Mm. If you analyse the way the dog uses the leg, uh, it never ever um, gets back to what you would call normal. What we're aiming for with treatment is a comfortable functional joint mm. and if you achieve that you're doing quite well yeah. um, you know by changing the joint uh, angles you're changing the whole dynamics of mm. the joint now you can't expect to do that without changing the way the dog actually uses the leg mm. And if you're critical and you look closely at the way they use the leg, you know it's not normal, it's not back to normal. Mm. And it's been shown, I think, that um, the arthritis that's set up within the joint during the process of breakdown, that still carries on. You still Mm. get a progressive uh, degeneration of the joint, even with treatment. Mm. And so in the um, later stages of life, the dog will show all the signs of an arthritic joint, which is stiffness, 
um, especially after rest and in cold wet weather they tend to get more stiff mm. but that happens with all the joints probably yeah. Yeah. <laughs> most of the joints mm. so it's only to be expected yeah. Star's cruciate rupture threw our family into panic and worry it was a horrible time and I was amazed that after several years of being heavily involved in the dog world I was unaware of such a common problem if your dog ruptures his cruciate ligament, please don't panic. The odds are that he will return to a happy, normal life again. But you must follow the directions of your surgeon and do ensure your dog has all the rest he needs. I worried so much that Star must be hating being cooped up in her crate so much. But when the time came that the door of the crate could be left open for her to come and go as she chose, she still opted to spend a lot of her time in there. One thing I did learn is that I should try and emulate my dogs and take what life throws at me in my stride, even if that stride is sometimes a limp. Studies show that a lovingly handled dog is a healthier dog. The touch of the human hand improves the functions of virtually all the sustaining systems, respiratory, circulatory, digestive and so on. A frequently petted puppy is not only healthier and happier, but also better behaved. I've been thinking recently about the strategies our dogs develop to get what they want. Buddy has always relied on his soulful eyes doing the talking for him. So, for example, if we're out on a walk, he has been trained to recall with treats. And every now and then, he obviously fancies a treat. So he'll run over to me, do a polite sit just to the side of me, and fix me with those big, brown, hopeful eyes. Star, of course, takes a more direct approach. We used treats to train her recall, and when we manage to find some treats that she likes, she often decides it's time for her to be treated again. No gentle sideways approach for her, though. She scurries round me and sits right in front of me, barring my path and staring up at me, mouth grinning open, cheeky tongue peeping out, ears flopping back. So endearing, she often does get a treat. After her recent surgery, we had to gradually increase her exercise until she was back up to normal. And then there was a possibility she had a wobbly kneecap, so we had to spend a further month trying to build muscle in her legs to stabilise the joint. All this was a little tiring for a dog who, although she enjoys a walk when she's out, can take some persuasion to get out in the first place. She does love the couch. So Star found herself basically on lots of route marches, and wasn't all that keen. Her answer was to repeatedly get in front of whoever was holding her lead and walk at a slow pace, making the handler slow down and thereby allowing Star to catch her breath. I was talking to a friend who has a border terrier called Spike, and her dog's passion is sticks. He'll pick up as big a stick as possible at the start of the walk and gnaw at it as they walk, ending the walk with a tiny piece of tooth-scarred slobbery wood. However, if they encounter another dog, Spike will hide his stick in nearby foliage and saunter past the dog as if he hasn't got a care in the world. Once the other dog is safely passed, Spike will dart off to retrieve his treasure. I thought that was clever. My mother had a German shepherd called Ben, who she would instruct to stay out of the dining room while we were having a meal. Poor Ben would lie just outside the door, whimpering piteously. If the door was left open a crack, he would work it open just enough for him to crawl through, and it seemed 
He thought we couldn't see him if he kept low to the ground. Or maybe he thought the rule was to stay lying down. Either way, it always got a laugh and was too cute to be seriously reprimanded. Perhaps that's what our dogs are best at, developing strategies to get round us and bypass those pesky rules we keep making. I'd say they're experts at that. Till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121-288-0922. From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 441212880922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident dogcast radio that's all one word dogcast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 all these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What do you get if you take a really big dog out for a walk? A great day out.